uh, open in your Bible to Luke 15, um, and we'll also have this up on the screens as well. Uh, next week, w- there's my family, um, and so what I have to do is I have to uh, press escape here and go back. I, I, I love my family, and, but that's not what we wanted to see right now, okay? Um, okay, so um, w- next week, we start a series in the book of Proverbs. And so this week, uh, I had a week where I wanted to talk about the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, and apply that to the ministry here at Grace Community Church. And uh, the title is The Culture Shaped by the Father. Now, um, all of you who are probably 25 or older remember the Merriam-Webster Dictionary that you, that you didn't have online, but it was a big red book. And uh, you were given it, this was part of your school supplies, you were given this, you know, to, you, had to, you had to use the dictionary. Well, now it's all online, and I don't even know if people use dictionaries as physical books anymore, but I found it interesting that in the year 2014, just three years ago, the, the word that was most searched for, I guess the word that had the most spike in searches was the word culture. I thought that was kind of strange. This year it's the, year, the word surreal. But in 2014 it was the word culture. Now I want you to think about, about what culture is. Culture is something that you feel before you can really express it or put it into words. So when you enter into this place, the Apple store, what do you feel? You feel something that's different than if you walk into the Microsoft store or if you walked into an appliance store. There's something about the Apple store that you feel like, oh, if I come in here and buy this product, I'm going to have power and I'm going to be cool. You feel that. That's part of the culture that they want you to encounter there. What about this? You go to OSU? the Gallagher-Iba or the Lloyd Noble Center. What do you feel when you go into those stadiums? You feel the culture of Oklahoma athletics. It's different in OSU, in Gallagher-Iba, than it is in the Lloyd Noble Center. Different cultures, different experiences. But you're encountering something that you feel before you can put it into words. Or what about your house? Some people buy houses that are very modern. Some people buy houses that are very, very classically Victorian. Now, when you walk into those houses, you feel something before you can put that cultural ethos into words. That's culture. Culture is something that you feel before uh, you can articulate. Well, what culture do we want people to feel when they walk into the doors of Grace Community Church? What culture do we want them to feel? And what I want to say this morning is that the culture that we want them to feel is the culture that is shaped by God the Father or shaped by the Father in this parable, which is the parable of the prodigal son. So I'm going to tell you the story of the parable, and then I'm going to show you some four, four ways that I think we can apply this to the encounter that people have when they come to Grace Community Church. So uh, three acts. Acts 1 uh, opens on this rebellious son. And in verse 11, it says, a man had two sons. 
The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So the dad divided his wealth between them. As a that's a very short verse, and a lot is packed into that verse. First of all, if you were one of Jesus' um, disciples and you heard this, this would have been a shocking thing to hear. We can't understand how shocking this would have been because we're the modern world. That was the ancient world. But for a son to say this to his dad was tantamount to the son saying, Dad, hate you, don't care about you and mom, I don't want to see you anymore, drop dead. Uh, that'd be shocking in our culture. That was doubly shocking in the ancient culture. This son is putting his mother's retirement in jeopardy. This son is putting his father's net worth in jeopardy. He's putting his older brother's career in jeopardy. He didn't care. All he's thinking about is himself. In the story, surprisingly, the father goes along with the plan. And since the uh, elder brother gets two-thirds of the estate, the father has to liquidate one-third of the estate, and you get, it, get the impression it was done very quickly because it says not too many days later. Now, you know when you sell a piece of property that you've got to you know, wait to get fair market value, you want to try to get the best deal you can possibly get. You get the impression that's not what was going on with this family. Your father had to liquidate this stuff very quickly. He's getting paid at below market value. Kid just wants the money, doesn't care about the economics of the thing. He just wants his cash. So now the son races off to the far off country. Think about the, that word, far off country. There's just this kind of idea of ex an exotic place, a place that I'm free to do anything that I want to do. Well, everybody who heard this probably envisioned a region of Israel called the Decapolis. The Decapolis was these 10 Deca, 10 polis cities, 10 cities. It's a region of 10 cities. Uh, most of them are contiguous. They're together. They were built after Alexander the Great conquered this area. And they were built so that there would be a Roman, a Greek and Roman culture embedded in the middle of Israel. So all around the Decapolis, people are Jewish and they're following Jewish customs, but the Decapolis is fully Greek, fully Roman, and you can do whatever you want to in the Decapolis. So people are probably thinking, this guy, he went to the Decapolis, and anything goes in the Decapolis. He can, he can do whatever he wants. He can have fun to his heart's content. Well, Luke 15, 13 says he squandered his wealth and wild living. Does that take any imagination to think about what he did? Nope. No, we, we, we know what he did. We, we know the parties that he enjoyed. We know the people that he hung out with. We, we know what he did. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that. But it didn't last very long. Because Luke 15, 14 says, now when he had spent everything. You can imagine this rebellious son going to a stash of cash in his room. He goes to the lockbox, opens up the lockbox, and he says, ugh. I got $1,000 left. Don't know how long that's going to last me. Up, uh, takes it out, parties some more. Then he's down to his last 20. Then he's down to his last dollar. Now he has nothing. 
and he's in a bad, in a very bad way. And to top things off, um, Luke 15, 14 says that a severe famine occurred in the country, and he soon began to be impoverished. Now, when you, we, we don't encounter famines that much in, in America, in, in the West. We don't encounter famines that much. But when you think about the equivalent of a famine in our culture, we would say that there was an economic downturn. We would say that there was a real estate crash. We would say there was a market crash. We'd say that everything came crumbling down on the economy in that area. And the son who didn't save his money, son who squandered his money, is now in really big trouble. And so he does land a job. He went out and hired himself out as one of the citizens of that country, to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Here's a kid who went from security in his father's household to a place of partying in the big city, now to a place of brutal, desperate need. Uh, For a Jewish man to land a job in a Gentile pig farm was as low as you could possibly get. And you, you, you think about it. First of all, for a Jewish man to seek employment at a Gentile farm was bad enough. For a Jewish man to go to a Gentile pig farm was really bad. To get the worst job on the farm, which is shoveling the slop into the feeding troughs, that was even worse. And then it's, it's a job that doesn't have a lot of food, apparently, because he's now jealous of the pig. So he's at rock bottom. If you're jealous, if you're a Jewish man and you're jealous of a pig, you have hit complete rock bottom. This is the lowest place you can possibly be. Envious of the pigs who are slurping up the slop. And Jesus in the story wants us to see that this boy has hit rock bottom. Now, is hitting bottom such a bad thing? Feels bad. But hitting bottom is is not always a bad thing. Because what, what happens when you hit bottom is you come to your senses. You break through your denial. You know, a, a lot of our lives are lived in denial. I'm not that bad. I'm not doing anything wrong. It's not my fault. A lot of our lives are lived in denial. And when you hit rock bottom, you, you tend to come to your senses. So here's a man who comes to his senses. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying of hunger? By the way, you, you see what he does there? What he does is he goes back and he thinks about the character of his dad. I mean, he's had, been having a lot of fun not thinking about his dad at all. In fact, he probably was, was happy to get rid of his dad, or so he thought. And now when he comes to his senses, what he realizes, wait a second, my dad has character. My dad has character. But I'm dying with hunger. I will get up, and I'll and I go to my father, and I'll say to, say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight, make me as one of your hired men. Um, It's a good thing to come to your senses. 
it's a good thing to realize that you've been in denial. It's sometimes a good thing to hit rock bottom. That's scene one. Now we move to scene two. And in scene two, we go from the rebellious son to the waiting and the watching father. So Luke 15, 20 begins by saying, while he was still a long way off. I love that verse. Because what that verse suggests is that this dad had a large hill on his property. And that hill overlooked a sweeping valley that looked way off into the Decapolis. Here's an example. This is Mount Arbel by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. When you look across the Sea of Galilee, you are looking into the region of the Decapolis. And we could imagine this dad standing on the hill overlooking the far-off country. And every day, he's scanning the horizon, wanting to see if the familiar walk of his son is there on the road. Day after day, he looks. Day after day, nobody's there. And then one day, he does see, way off in the distance, the familiar gate of his son. And when he sees his son, he does what hardly anybody did in the ancient world. He ran. He ran. Um, why, do, why do men not run in the ancient world? Why is that? Men never ran in the ancient world. Why, why didn't they do that? Men were dignified. They wore long flowing robes. Men who owned farms and ranches like this would never run. They had other people who would do their chores for them. They would never run because to run meant you had to hike up your robes and expose your bare legs. And in that culture, that was thought to be a very shameful thing. So this man does what, what no man would do in that culture, hikes up his robes, and he begins to run. And he's running hard and fast. And um, the father makes his way, I'm, I'm envisioning, you know, down the path through the village. People in the village are coming out and watching the dad as he runs. He runs past the village. He runs down the hill. He runs toward his son. Everybody's staring at this well-known man who is shaming himself by running toward his rebellious son. He's shaming himself, exposing his legs, running. And then the father does something else. He humiliates himself even more by falling on his son and repeatedly kissing him on the neck. Now, we would, we would assume he would run up to his son and say, you lousy, no good for nothing kid. What have you done shaming me in front of all these villagers here? I don't want you back here at all. You would think that's what he would do, but he doesn't do that. Instead, what the dad does is he repeatedly kisses his son on the neck as a sign of total acceptance. Why does the father shame himself before the watching world, shame himself by doing this with his son? Well, you think about it this way. The father has two options. Option number one is to remain dignified while his son comes to him in shame. That's option number one. Option number two is to shame himself so that his son remains dignified. 
That's what the dad did. He takes the shame of the son onto himself so that the son can remain dignified. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus hangs on the cross and he is the payment for our sin. He encounters the shame of the cross. He encounters the indignity of the cross so that we might have the dignity of being regarded as sons of God as we come to him in faith. Now, here's what happens, happens next. The son begins to speak. Remember, he's been rehearsing a speech in the far-off country. And part one of the speech says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Part two, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Part three was going to be, Father, make me a hired servant. But he can't get to part three because the father interrupts, and rather than speaking to, directly to his son, he addresses the servants who must have run with him. You can imagine the father running, the servants running after the father, trying to think, what's going on? What, what, what do we need to do? We need to be with our, with our leader here. And he addresses, <coughs> addresses the servants. <coughs> and, and here's the son um, composing his three-part speech. Make, I've sinned in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a hired servant. But he doesn't get to that part. Doesn't get to that part. So instead, what happens is the father says, bring out, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Robes were a sign of dignity in the ancient world. If you were wealthy, you wore a multicolored robe. Who else wore a multicolored robe? Joseph did. Well, the father, if he was wealthy, wore a multicolored robe. It was most likely the most expensive piece of property he owned because they were, they were, they were very rare, they were unique, they were one of a kind. Maybe it was not the most expensive, but, but it was very, very expensive. Uh, to wear that robe meant to have status in the household. Then the father says, bring out the ring. So this was the signet ring. And if you were making a declaration, you melted wax and you impressed the signet ring into the, into the wax, making it an official legal document. Father says, bring out the robe. Bring out the ring. And then the father says, bring out the sandals. Well, in a household like that, the father was the only one who got to wear his sandals into the house. Everybody else had to take their sandals off. To be able to wear those sandals was a sign that you had the same dignity as the father in the household. So bring out the robe, bring out the ring, bring out the sandals. It doesn't sound like there's going to be a lecture. You know, where's the lecture? Where's the, where's the shaming lecture? Where's the things that I, I trusted you? You are my son. You let me down. Where's all that money that, that uh, I gave to you? Where, where is it? What would what, you do with it? There's no lecture like that. Instead, what the father is doing is he's reestablishing his lost son into his full legal rights as a son in the father's household. Then he says, bring out the fatted calf. Kill it. Let's eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they begin to celebrate. This was no small party because the fatted calf um, could feed a hundred people or more at a village party. He's inviting the whole village to come. Here he had shamed himself 
before the people in the village. Now the villagers are going to come and see the son who's been reestablished to sonship, something that would never ordinarily have happened in the ancient world. This is radical forgiveness. This is radical grace. So that's act two. Act, Act one is the rebellious son. Act two is the waiting and the watching father. Act three is the angry brother. The angry brother. The guy who, well, you know, he's the good one, right? He's the one who hasn't done anything wrong. He's the obedient one. He's the guy who's always done what his dad has asked him to do. At least that's what we think. Imagine the sun beginning to set, and from the father's backyard, the people in the village hear the musicians begin to play. In the ancient world, that was your signal. Musicians play, you go to the party, okay? Because they didn't have, like, wristwatches or eyewatches, like, ah, time to go to the party. You know, I've got this in my calendar. Now, when the music played, you went to the party. However, the elder brother is still lingering out in the fields, and the elder brother is seething with, with rage. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing. I mean, come on. If, if this, is, if this is a celebratory party. There's dancing there. Not 